You are listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in today. Hey, joining me in just a short bit here on the program is Dr. Chris Martinson. If you have been a longtime listener to the program, you probably recognize Dr. Martinson as the author of the book Crash Course. He has recently co-authored a book uh, with Mr. Adam Taggart titled Prosper, How to Prepare for the Future and Create a World Worth Inheriting. We'll be talking to Dr. Martinson about his book as well as his view of the U.S. economy, and he's got some very interesting things to say about commodities, so you'll want to stay tuned for that. You know, in this first segment today, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to think maybe a little bit differently about your IRA or 401k plan. You know, just about everyone today who is saving for retirement uses an IRA or a 401k plan, particularly if the employer for whom you work has a match on your 401k plan. But I want you to think about something relating to an IRA or 401k today from a little bit different perspective and see if you think this doesn't make sense. You see, when you decide whether or not you want to use an IRA or a 401k for your retirement savings, you're probably told a number of things, but one of the things that you undoubtedly were told was that when you make a contribution to an IRA or a 401k, you get a tax deduction for your contribution. And this tax deduction is a good thing. Now, I would challenge you today to think about that statement. While tax deductions are good, tax deductions for contributions to retirement accounts are really not actually deductions. Really, these are loans made to you by the Internal Revenue Service. Now, hear me out. The IRS will make sure that this loan gets paid back when you retire, plus interest. If you get decent growth in your IRA or your 401k, the interest that you could pay could be massive. So the reality is this tax deduction is really not a deduction at all. See, a real tax deduction does not have to be paid back. A real tax deduction doesn't have any strings attached. See, if you make a gift to a charity, for example, the amount of that gift is deductible on your taxes, and that's the end of the story. That's not true of a deduction taken for a contribution to an IRA or 401k. When you deduct your contribution to an IRA or a 401k on your tax return, there are plenty of strings attached. When you take a tax deduction for a contribution to an IRA or 401k, the IRS immediately places a lien on your retirement account. This lien is, in one sense, kind of like the lien the banker might place on your house when you take out a mortgage. The IRA or 401k account is collateral for that loan. 
However, the difference between the loan the IRS makes to you and the mortgage loan that you might get from a banker is that the terms of the mortgage loan from the banker are defined in advance. The terms of the mortgage loan are outlined in your loan documents, and they can't be changed. Now, that's simply not true of the loan the IRS makes to you when you take a tax deduction for a contribution to a retirement account. The terms of paying back that loan to the IRS are unknown and can be changed at any time if the Washington politicians decide to change the tax rules. So let me ask you this. Do you think future income tax rates are going to be higher or do you think they're going to be lower than they are presently? Go ahead and answer the question. I mean, if you answered the question that you think future tax rates are going to be lower, then the loan repayment terms on your IRA or 401k will become more favorable. On the other hand, if you think income tax rates are going to be higher in the future than they are today, then those loan repayment terms become more unfavorable. See, this lien that the IRS places on your account when you reduce the income reported on your tax return by the amount of the contribution entitles the IRS to a portion of every withdrawal on that account for the rest of your life. Every time you take retirement income out of your retirement account, the IRS requires you to make another payment to them. The brutal truth is that the IRS, in exchange for giving you this loan, now becomes a joint investing partner with you in your retirement account. The amount you end up paying back to the IRS will increase as your account grows. So instead of paying back principal plus interest to the IRS as you would on a mortgage loan, you actually forfeit a percentage of your retirement account to the IRS for the rest of your life. And when the IRA or 401k is eventually passed to your heirs, the IRS, your investing partner in the account, will once again be there to take their share. And as I said, if tax rates rise, the amount that needs to be paid back to the IRS surges. Think about that for a minute. Would you take out a mortgage if the banker not only got principal and interest payments from you, but also got an ownership share in your house? And the banker could at any time change the terms of the loan? Now, you probably agree that someone would have to be crazy to enter into a loan agreement like that. But again, to challenge you to think about this from a little bit different perspective, that's exactly what you're doing when you put money in an IRA or 401k and take an income tax deduction. Now, let me give you a quick example, and let me be very clear. This is a hypothetical example. Let's take a 30-year-old taxpayer in a combined tax bracket of 20% who contributes $5,000 to a retirement account. Well, That creates a tax deduction of $1,000. 20% of the $5,000 contribution, it generates $1,000 in tax savings. But again, I would challenge you to think about that in terms of a loan. Let's say that 30-year-old taxpayer does that for 10 years and then never 
contributes another penny to the IRA. $1,000 a year in tax savings times 10 years is $10,000 in tax savings. Now let's just assume that account grows at 5% to age 70 and a half when this taxpayer has to take required minimum distributions. Many of you are familiar with that. And then let's assume at retirement, the account grows at a 4% rate. And let's assume that this taxpayer takes only required minimum distributions until age 90. Assuming no change in tax rates, assuming a 20% tax rate throughout this taxpayer's lifetime, which is admittedly fantasy, the total taxes paid on the retirement account will be over $100,000, $101,562. Tax savings were $10,000. Taxes paid, $101,562. Again, to put it in different terms, the original loan amount from the IRS was $10,000. The total cost to pay back the loan is $101,562. My question for you is, is this a good deal? You know, we have some resources available because we have lower tax rates for the next seven tax years. It behooves many IRA or 401k owners to look at strategies that exist that may allow them to ultimately reduce the cost of this loan payback. We give you that information when you request our book, and we're making it available for one more week. You can go to thenewretirementrulesbook.com, and we will be glad to send you a free copy of the best-selling book, as well as some IRA tax reduction information. I'll be back after these words. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. Dennis Tubergen here, host of RLA Radio. I'd like to invite you to get a free copy of my best-selling book, New Retirement Rules. Visit www.newretirementrulesbook.com to request your free copy. The book will help you identify the risks that could threaten your dream of a comfortable, stress-free retirement and give you strategies to consider to help you avoid these threats. Visit www.newretirementrulesbook.com to request your free copy. The New Retirement Rules book will thoroughly explain the two-bucket approach to managing your nest egg that we frequently discuss on the RLA radio program. You'll also discover why the traditional approach to retirement income planning may fail many investors moving ahead. For a limited time, the book is free. 
Just visit www.NewRetirementRulesBook.com to get your free copy. www.NewRetirementRulesBook.com Welcome back to RLA Radio. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me on today's program is Dr. Chris Martinson. If you have been a longtime listener to the program, you'll recognize uh, Chris's name as a returning guest. Uh, Chris is the author of the still must-read book, Crash Course, and uh, more recently he has a book uh, co-authored with Adam Taggart titled Prosper, How to Prepare for the Future and Create a World Worth Inheriting. And uh, that comes with uh, great accolades. I'd encourage you to check that one out as well. And uh, you can learn more about his work at peakprosperity.com. With that, Chris, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Dennis. It's so good to be back with you today. Well, let's, first of all, Chris, just talk a bit about the premise of your book, uh, Crash Course, and some of the things you talked about in the book. Maybe just give the listeners an overview and then uh, maybe transition as to, to where you think we are today. Sure. The crash course, I wrote that, gosh, it's 10 years old now, but it, it pointed out something that's even more true today than I think was back then, which is that we're on an unsustainable course of economic growth on this planet. And it's just rooted in this very simple idea that the world is finite and uh, it has only so much oil and gas and tuna fish and uh, lithium and things like that. that. That should be obvious. But the second part is that we have a money system that has to grow exponentially constantly or it's threatening to do things like collapse like it did in 2008. And so that's the world we're in right now. The crash course makes the case using lots of data uh, that uh, we're at a place in human evolution where our, our way of organizing ourselves economically and financially is now running into some difficulties. And it's on an unsustainable course. And, and I'm sure many of your listeners would know that with reference to uh, the idea that they personally can't take on uh, increasing amounts of debt forever and ever if their income is staying below that level. And we can't do that as a nation. We can't do that as a world. So just economically, we're on a debt binge that's thoroughly unsustainable because it's been growing a lot faster than the economy. And then the economy itself, it grows if and only if we have access to more energy. Oh my gosh, what a story we have there about uh, where we are in the fossil fuel story, whether you're concerned about CO2 on one side or, uh, like I am, you're actually worried about how much there is, and not only how much, but of what quality, how much energy are we getting back from that energy. So that's the crash course. It sort of puts all those pieces together, pretty easy to read format, and makes the case and says, hey, this is going to change. So that's where I see where we are today. We're still struggling with those changes, and it helps me understand geopolitics, what's happening with the Federal Reserve, all those big moving pieces we talked about last time. Chris, uh, you know, when you go back and look at the financial crisis and then look at the monetary response to that, not only did interest rates get reduced to zero and really nothing happened, the Fed then elected to engage in essentially money printing, this, this program of quantitative easing where money is just created out of thin air. Knowing um, where we are now and looking at it from the perspective of when the crash course was released, uh, did you ever think that the Fed would be able to create the amount of money they did out of thin air and still have the monetary system hold up? I did not, and and I would have absolutely lost a lot of money betting against that 
The, and it wasn't just the Fed. This is really global. It's the People's Bank of China, too. It's the European Central Banks, the Bank of Japan. All the central banks fell in line behind the Fed around this idea that you could just print more and more money, throw it into the financial markets, mostly through bond purchases, but even directly equity purchases in the case of Swiss Bank, Bank of Japan, and that you could do that and that somehow traders, investors, humans wouldn't be um, – uh, really disturbed by that idea, and and I think you know I, the powers that be and and the big traders were happy to go along, uh, feast at that trough, siphon money off for themselves. This is the whole the rich got richer story, while nobody else did, right? You know, real wages for average people dead flat, um, and that's with manipulated statistics. So, so it's really a story of where what the central banks really did is they engaged in the most political act I can think of. They took from the many. That would be everybody with a savings account who didn't get interest because interest rates were zero. Um, took from all of those people and people who were on fixed incomes and transferred it over to the big banks and to the, to the elite of the elite. I'm talking, you know, if you think the 1% made out, you should see what the 0.1% did. And if you think they made out, you see what the 0.01%. In fact, the people who did the best, the 0.001. They really concentrated wealth, which is a deeply political act. It has social ramifications that are showing up in Europe first because they have a longer tradition of, of, of demonstrating. That's the yellow vest, the Italian po uh, populist movement, things like that. So this deeply political act, they did it for as long as they could. They're going to try it again probably at some point, and um, that's the world we live in. You know, and, and when you look at uh, the, the, the Fed, uh, wasn't too many months ago, I'll say six months ago or so, uh, Mr. Powell said we're going to normalize rates. Uh, there was similar talk from um, the uh, governor of the Bank of Japan. There was similar talk from uh, the European Central Bank. And now in the last six months, it seems that all of these world banks, these world central banks, have reversed course. And uh, now it looks like we maybe have QE to infinity. Is, is that how you see things? Well, I do. And, and of course, this works as long as you have uh, unity across the world's central banks' uh, landscape. So if, if they all continue to play ball, uh, I think you can continue to pump things like that. Eventually it breaks down, as I mentioned, with, with the social pressure. They <clears throat> finally become too much, um, and you do get a breakdown in the political structure, the social structure. So the mistake that the central banks are making is focusing solely on money, thinking that they can solve everything through money. Look, it worked for the last 100 years. It's not working today because, A, too much debt in the system already. B, we will we'll never go back to uh, $10 a barrel oil in, in current terms uh, like we had a long time ago. It's just those days are gone. And so now we have to figure out how we're going to live in a world of slightly less, but the system only knows exponentially more. That's the tension right now. And that's what the Fed's defending is uh, the, they, all they can think to do is increase debts. So they cheer student loans going to 1.6 trillion now. They cheer, uh, you know, increasing credit card debt. The, they, they, they talk about it as a huge positive when mortgage debt and auto loans go spiking higher. Uh, that's the world they live in, and that world works if and only if you can pay all those debts back in the future. I don't see that happening. Well, you know, Chris, when you when you look at this uh, and say, look, debt debt is increasing. We have, uh, you know, just in the the U.S. Uh, budget, we've got a trillion dollar deficit or so. Uh, there there seems to be no end in sight. There doesn't seem to be any uh, motivation to have politicians address this. 
And while knowing when this might actually come to a head uh, is pretty difficult, um, what do you see the end game looking like? I mean, we all know this can't continue forever. So when it stops, what do the conditions look like? Well, something Dennis is going to have to force the issue here because humans will not willingly change if they don't have to. Uh, The central banks have been convi- have convinced themselves they can just get away with this sort of behavior, and, and they probably can as long as the media doesn't look into it too hard, and the, and we don't have a, a effective fourth estate, you know, oversight of all of this, and and everybody's bought into it. So that's kind of where we're at right now. The forcing function I see is most likely, barring you know some geopolitical event, you know, I don't know, Iran ends up sinking a U.S. aircraft carrier or something, like some barring something like that. Uh, we are facing a huge structural shortfall in oil production that's going to be showing up in a year or two, and that's just based on the fact that we have about a trillion and a half dollars of oil investment that didn't happen between 2014, late 15, 16, 17, and 18. Very, very weak years for oil investment across the globe. And uh, U.S. shale story aside, what we really needed uh, is cheap oil of the kinds of grades that we would have gotten from uh, that kind of exploration that didn't happen. So it didn't happen. We can see that shortfall coming. There's a higher oil price in the future. That will be the forcing function because high oil prices and high debt loads are a bad combo. And it turns out the central banks can't print oil. <laughs> so uh, I know that the whole idea of an oil shortfall might come as news to a lot of our listeners. Um, where do you see oil prices going, and, and how do you see maybe some of our listeners being affected uh, down the road a year or two? Well, oil prices, when we get to any sort of a shortfall, are going to go a lot higher. I think we're already seeing signs, very subtle signs, in the oil market pricing structure that says there are higher oil prices coming in the future. I think the mistake people are making is thinking, well, maybe it settles in at 80 or so, and, and we've survived 80. I could see them twice as high as that. And uh, it really takes only the tiniest of shortfalls to really begin to move the price of oil. It's what's called an inelastic um, uh, commodity. So with even tiny shortfalls, it moves up a lot in price. With even tiny amounts of oversupply, it moves down a lot in price. So it's really sensitive. And uh, I see that oil shortfall coming in, in uh, as I said, in a year or two. And then the whole narrative changes, and all of a sudden everybody's talking about shortfalls instead of oversupply, and, and that's, that's where we are. And this will impact people quite a bit. And to gauge the impact, all you have to remember is what was it like in 2007 when, and early 2008 when oil spiked to 4 and then over 5 and closing in on $6 a gallon in some locations in the U.S.? Well, we're chatting today with uh, Dr. Chris Martinson. Uh, Chris is the co-author of the book Prosper. Uh, you can learn more about the book at peakprosperity.com and lo- learn more about Chris's work there as well. And uh, Chris, uh, to, to finish up this segment, and we'll talk about the book Prosper in the next segment, um, you had mentioned earlier uh, in this segment that uh, a lot of the economic data reporting uh, really um, is not very accurate. Uh, let's look particularly at the inflation rate. With all this quantitative easing, the official inflation rate is you know, at the, in the 2% range or so. Where do you see the real inflation rate? 
Well, let me just uh, help illustrate why this is such a, a scam and sham at this point in time using just one component. So, so when the, we talk inflation, they talk about the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, right? And that's held. It's a, a collection of item prices put together by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So the BLS says, hey, inflation's only maybe 2% right now. But when you look into that, one of the subcomponents is healthcare. And one of the tricks that you can play if you're trying to make something look different than it is, is to mess around with what's called the weighting. So here's an example. According to the BLS, healthcare is 4.5% of my total expenditure. So as a weighting in a basket of goods, let's say we put mayonnaise and, and, and um, uh, diapers and, and healthcare in a basket and said, that's what Chris buys. They say it's only 4.5% of my purchase, but healthcare is 20% of our overall GDP spend right now. So if you took something that's rising very rapidly in price and made its weight smaller and smaller and smaller, it, it shows apparent inflation being a lot less than it is. So I'm like many of your listeners. I have a, a private health insurance plan I have to pay for for my family. It's the largest single monthly expenditure I have, larger than my mortgage, larger than my mortgage combined with my auto payment, right? So it's a really big expenditure, and it's rising by anywhere from uh, 10 to 23% a year for the past 10 years. And according to the government, that's only been rising at about a 3% rate. So that's where the tricks get made. It's obviously, that's just one component. There's other tricks they play with rent, with housing, with all kinds of things, not accounting for shrinkflation when the box of cornflakes goes from 20 ounces to 18 and still recording the prices the same. Things like that are all the sorts of games that combine for the government to say, yeah, Chris, your inflation is just around 2% when it's probably three to four times higher than that, according to my own personal estimate. Well, that is the end of this segment. Uh, we're chatting today with Dr. Chris Martinson. I would encourage you to check out his book, Prosper, and you can learn more about his work at the website peakprosperity.com. That's peakprosperity.com. I will continue my conversation with Dr. Chris Martinson when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. Dennis Tubergen here, host of RLA Radio. I'd like to invite you to get a free copy of my best-selling book, New Retirement Rules. Visit www.newretirementrulesbook.com to request your free copy. The book will help you identify the risks that could threaten your dream of a comfortable, stress-free retirement 
and give you strategies to consider to help you avoid these threats. Visit www.NewRetirementRulesBook.com to request your free copy. The New Retirement Rules Book will thoroughly explain the two-bucket approach to managing your nest egg that we frequently discuss on the RLA radio program. You'll also discover why the traditional approach to retirement income planning may fail many investors moving ahead. For a limited time, the book is free. Just visit www.NewRetirementRulesBook.com to get your free copy www.NewRetirementRulesBook.com I am Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to RLA Radio. I'm chatting today with Dr. Chris Martinson. Uh, Chris is the co-author of the book Prosper, and uh, his website is PeakProsperity.com. I would encourage you to check it out. And... uh, Chris, uh, this book, Prosper, How to Prepare for the Future and Create a World Worth Inheriting, give the listeners the premise of the book. What motivated you to put this book together? Well, sure. It's really uh, almost like Crash Course Part B. The Crash Course book and and video series is all problem definition. We did a little of that in the prior segment. Like, hey, here's some things that that we think say there's going to be big changes coming and predicaments we're facing and things like that. Well, Prosper is the, well, great, but what do I do about that? So this is the solution side of the story. And what we do there is we organize and help reframe the idea of what really do we mean by prosperity? Like how would somebody really prosper? Of course, financial wealth is a really important source of capital. We think people should uh, you know, manage it carefully and understand the actual risks that are involved in, in the, the world today. But financial capital is just one of many different forms of capital, and we organized prosper around eight forms of capital. Financial is one, but social capital, very important to your well-being and your overall prosperity and an important source of resilience as you uh, move through whatever future comes. Living capital would be another example. This is the health of your own body, but as well the environmental, ecological health of your local landscape, good, clean water without you know, estrogen mimetics in it, you know, bees that will pollinate your things, things like that. So so we, we organize around those eight forms of capital, and the idea is that if you are rich in all eight forms, you're resilient, you're happier, you're healthier today, and if some of these things I talk about in the unsustainable future come forward, you'll be a lot more resilient and better able to first weather the storms as they come, but then most importantly, be of help and service to those around you. So let's start with uh, financial capital. Uh Christy, where, where do you see opportunities moving ahead? Well, the, we're very much in, in the framework of thinking that uh, we, we like real, tangible wealth. So the larger sweep of the story, when we talked about QE and central banks printing money, when we, people get mistaken in thinking that money is wealth. It's not. It's a claim on wealth. So if you had a billion dollars on a rocky island with no store on it and no other people, you'd have some paper, right? So I think we can all agree that money is useful because it allows us to buy things. But the things is the real wealth. So we think the opportunities in this story are to uh, own real tangible forms of wealth, primary, secondary wealth. This is rich farmland. These are um, cash flowing uh, uh, real estate, either residential, commercial. This is oil wells. This is uh, you know putting investments into your own house that reduce your cash flows for energy needs. Things that are tangible, concrete, relatively easily understood, but they're harder 
to uh, get involved in and to make real than, say, pushing the button and buying a share of Apple. Right? So, so what we're here uh, to tell people is uh, real, tangible assets. The easiest of those is probably gold, um, and so we, we're fans of that at this particular point in time. And as well, uh, we are fans at this particular point of, of just being in uh, money for now, in cash, while we wait for better prices to come, because we think there are better prices in some financial assets. But our primary advice is don't have all your eggs in the financial basket alone. Many periods of history show that there are things called wealth transfers that happen when banks overprint, they get a little ahead of themselves, and then guess what? It's the money that reprices to the real stuff, not the other way around. And you, so you, should, you want to have the real stuff. So, Chris, when you say the money reprices to the real stuff, um, can, can you expand on that a bit for our listeners just to, so everybody can kind of understand what you're talking about? Sure. So, so you know, there's a, a, a huge inflationary um, bust going on right now in Venezuela. Uh, we saw one in Zimbabwe recently. Uh, there was one in Yugoslavia before that, Weimar Germany. So these are examples of when the money, I, I use that term very vaguely, repricing, because it can go one of two ways. One, it goes through an inflationary bust in, and it breaks down. So there was a famous example from Weimar Germany where uh, you know, all this money was printed and people were taking wheelbarrows of it down just like they are in Venezuela and trying to buy stuff. And at the height of all of this, a bellhop bought the hotel that he used to work for, now owned, with a single gold coin. Because that gold coin was worth so many paper dollars that uh, he was able to buy out the mortgage on that particular property for uh, one other tangible asset. So that's an example of where the money just got repriced and it was suddenly worthless compared to everything. And um, we saw the money become worthless in value. There's a second direction it can go. They're fighting this one tooth and nail. It's called deflation. This would be the 1920, late 20s and 30s in the United States when all of a sudden the value of money goes up a lot because money is being destroyed in the banking system because debts are defaulting all over the place highly destructive, destroys political and, and banking careers alike. Nobody wants to see that one come forward, um, so it, but it still remains a possibility. And so before we know what that possibility is, wh which way it's going to break, it's best to uh, hedge your bets and make sure that you, you are just watching carefully to know which way this is going to go. Well, and, and Chris, if you look at private sector debt levels, uh, they're really unsustainable at this point. Uh, as well, at least from the numbers I'm seeing, you can certainly disagree if if, if you do. But when, when private sector debt levels get to a point that they're unsustainable, isn't that really going to automatically trigger deflation, at least in some asset classes? That's exactly my thinking. And the reason is, is that the definition of a bubble that I love most is that a bubble exists when asset prices rise beyond what incomes can sustain. Right, so if you're buying a, a rental property and you know if you can only rent it for a thousand a month, but your mortgage is two thousand a month, the assets way beyond what the cash flows can sustain. So what you're talking about is private sector debt gets to a point where the question is, can the can the income service that? And there's an answer beyond which the answer is no. I think we're there, and so that means that we are going to see that uh, deflationary impulse scares the bejesus out of the Federal Reserve officials because they can't control a deflation when it happens. They think they can control an inflation. That's what they're pushing against right now. But when, not if, but I think when 
that debt bubble begins to burst, we're going to see another Lehman moment, as it were, uh, a time when it becomes very uncertain, lots of things uh, heading down in price a lot, which is why I think having cash is a legitimate position at this point in time, because there will be better prices. And at that point, that's when I expect money for Main Street, the Federal Reserve to freak out and do something, I don't know, monetize next year's tax payments, nobody has to pay taxes for the Treasury, or something. There'll be some moment where they realize Throwing all this money at Wall Street wasn't quite good enough. We have to throw this across the land. And that's when you had better have your positions in real assets already in place. So there, there's so many different things we could talk about here, Chris. But let me go back and talk about just the, 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 the possibility of what you just uh, described. In that case, obviously, tangible assets like gold uh, would be uh, very beneficial to own. And um, I've done some research uh, briefly on just the purchasing power of gold over the last well, since 71, which is an obvious point to start. And when you take a look at the, the long term, tangible assets seem to be a better way to make that future claim on wealth, to use your term, than paper assets. Uh, would you agree with that? And can you expand? Well, I absolutely agree with that. And the reason for that, again, is, is if you understand what, what we call money actually is in a society, it's really, again, it's just a claim. Money is a claim. Debt is a claim on future money. They're both just claims. So if you look at the claims, there needs to be a relationship between the claims and the real stuff, which is the real wealth. And we're marketed to so heavily, and we're convinced that investment, if I say investment, everybody immediately thinks portfolio, it's at Wall Street somewhere. But in fact, uh, that's not the real wealth. The real wealth is the productive enterprise of the country. It's the factories, it's the, it's the commercial properties, it's the farms, it's the places where things get produced. So that's the real wealth. And uh, if you don't have exposure to that, if you don't have ownership in that, then you don't actually have any true direct claim on the wealth. So we, we're big fans of people owning things where it, there's real, direct, tangible wealth. I like gold because it's the only monetary asset in a system where the, every other monetary um, asset out there is somebody else's liability. So gold is just wonderful because it, it's money. And if you own it, nobody else has a, a claim on that. Nobody else has a liability on the backside of that. So that, that's uh, a very unique feature of gold that I can't find replicated anywhere else in the monetary system, even a $100 bill. It says Federal Reserve note right at the top. That's a liability of the Federal Reserve. Let's look at their balance sheet. Oops, these people are doing crazy stuff. I'd rather not own that, right? So, so that's uh, one example. And then there, But there are plenty of others out there. And if you understand the oil story the way I do, uh, having tangible exposure to energy and lots of ways to do that, both on the efficiency side and the production side, lots of ways. Uh, silver, I love um, because it's, it's just this fantastic element on the periodic table, most reflective, most conductive. Uses ranging from antimicrobial paints in operating rooms to uh, being used in, in solar panel and, uh, construction. So it's just fantastic stuff. And it's just being consumed like crazy, and it's diminishing supplies in the ground. Again, Dennis, because we're at that part of the story where uh, no fresh continents to find. We, we, all the big silver mines have probably been discovered. We're now down to the dribs and drabs. And um, so, you know, this is uh, an incredible moment to be alive as an investor. But first thing you got to do, you got to get educated. You got to know what the game is, and you have to understand that it's changing. 
Well, Chris, I have time for just one more question here, and let's let's go back and uh, relating to gold and silver. You know, with all the quantitative easing that we've seen, all the easy money policies since the financial crisis, and if you take a look at gold and silver prices, they've really kind of been stuck in a trading range for the last five, five and a half years. Uh, are you of the mindset that we're going to see a breakout to the upside of that of that trading range here fairly soon? Well, I, I'm not sure about the fairly soon part, but I know it's coming. And, and let me talk about it for silver uh, to start. Silver's um, first. In 2011, we had QE3 announced. That was also a peak of uh, pricing for gold and a pretty near-term peak for silver. After that, not just gold and silver, but all sorts of commodities just went down and down and down across the entire commodity complex. Very convenient for the central banks who are printing. Um, why every single commodity decided that, that they were the only asset class that was really not going to participate in the money printing is a, another story for another day. I have my suspicions about that particular story. But here's how crazy it is for silver. If you look at the World Silver, Gold, silver Council, they put out a chart. They show you all the supply, all the demand, add it all up at the bottom. You either are in a structural oversupply or undersupply. You either have a surplus or, sh- or a shortfall. Ten years straight, we've had a structural shortfall in silver. Between 80 and 130 million ounces every year is being consumed above what's being produced. Ten years, we're in a commodity that's been in a shortfall, and the price today is exactly where it was ten years ago. I can't find any other commodity that I can tell you that about. It's absolutely a nutty situation. Uh, there's a big story about who's controlling it and why, but but let's just... Let's just leave it at this. Uh, the speculators who are in charge of the paper price of silver are the signal in this story, and everybody else is the noise. So that's all the investors, all the producers, all the consumers. Uh, so, so that's a situation that if you, um, you know, I don't know the when in this story, but I'm pretty convinced that that's, you know, somebody said, Chris, Rip Van Winkle, pick one. Silver is my, my, my pick in this story. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Great stuff. Uh, my guest today has been Dr. Chris Martinson. He is the co-author of the book Prosper. You can learn more about his work at peakprosperity.com. Uh, it's really more like a community. It's a terrific website. I encourage you to check it out. And Chris, thanks for joining us today. Love to have you back. My pleasure. I'd love to be back. We will return after these words. Stay with us. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, Just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. Dennis Tubergen here, host of RLA Radio. I'd like to invite you to get a free copy of my best-selling book, New Retirement Rules. 
visit www.NewRetirementRulesBook.com to request your free copy. The book will help you identify the risks that could threaten your dream of a comfortable, stress-free retirement and give you strategies to consider to help you avoid these threats. Visit www.NewRetirementRulesBook.com to request your free copy. The New Retirement Rules book will thoroughly explain the two-bucket approach to managing your nest egg that we frequently discuss on the RLA radio program. You'll also discover why the traditional approach to retirement income planning may fail many investors moving ahead. For a limited time, the book is free. Just visit www.NewRetirementRulesBook.com to get your free copy. www.NewRetirementRulesBook.com I am Dennis Tubergen. You are listening to Retirement Lifestyle Advocates Radio. And thanks again to Dr. Chris Martinson for joining us on today's program. You know, in this last segment of today's program, I want to have you consider with me whether or not we are living in what I will call a monetary fantasy land. There's just a lot of stuff going on out there that just doesn't make sense. I wrote about this in the Portfolio Watch newsletter last week. In fact, if you're not a subscriber, uh, you can go to rla.yourportfoliowatch.com and sign up for a free subscription. And in last week's newsletter, I presented this whole idea of us now existing in this monetary fantasy land by giving just three examples. And I want to walk through them with you very quickly uh, in this segment. And I think I'll be giving you some information that may even be new to you. You know, there's been a lot of interest, um, a lot of enthusiasm around cryptocurrencies. And if you're not familiar with cryptocurrencies, cryptocurrencies are basically digital currencies that are backed up by something called blockchain technology. And that's a really different topic for a different day. But the most popular cryptocurrency is something called Bitcoin. Now, Bitcoin has experienced a significant price spike again as of late. And about a year and a half ago, um, I wrote a piece on Bitcoin stating that uh, at the time Bitcoin was at about $8,000, that I thought Bitcoin was a bubble. And in fact, Bitcoin went all the way up to 20000 It's dropped to about 3500 Now it's spiked back again to the 7000 range. And no, I am not getting excited about Bitcoin, and I'll tell you why. The valuation of Bitcoin, as well as a lot of other assets, as we'll be talking uh, in, in this segment, Um, is just crazy. See, there was a recent article in the Wall Street Journal. It was uh, republished uh, on CNBC. And there was a study conducted that found that about 95% of all Bitcoin trading is fake. And I'm going to give you just a little bit from the CNBC article. An analysis published by Bitwise this week shows that 95% of Bitcoin spot trading is faked by unregulated exchanges. The survey, first reported by the Wall Street Journal, echoes concerns by regulators that cryptocurrency markets are still ripe for manipulation. 
The analysis showed that substantially all the volume reported on 71 out of the 81 exchanges was wash trading. Wash trading is a term that describes a person simultaneously selling and buying the same stock, or in this case, Bitcoin, to create the appearance of activity in the market, but it's not real. These exchanges reported an aggregate of $6 billion in average daily Bitcoin volume. However, the study found that only $273 million out of the $6 billion of this trading was legitimate. So the reality is that cryptocurrencies are a relatively thinly traded market and they are largely unregulated. So certainly that lends itself to the idea that a lot of what we see going on in money markets is fantasy. But here is an even better example. The very idea that investors are pouring money into shares in companies who never made a profit is crazy. But it's typical as we reach the end of a boom phase of the boom and bust cycle that really characterizes the world economy today. Now, Uber, and if you've done any traveling, you probably have an Uber app on your phone, and I use it. Uber is a terrific way to get around. But according to Forbes, Uber booked $3 billion in operating losses last year. Yet, the company just had an initial public offering, an IPO, that put $8 billion on its balance sheet. And let me read you a line from Uber's disclosure document. We have incurred significant losses since inception, including in the United States and other major markets. We expect our operating expenses to increase significantly in the foreseeable future, and we may not achieve profitability. Uber's not alone. Uh, Lyft, a competitor of Uber, has a parallel story, a successful initial public offering, and operating losses. In fact, according to the Wall Street Journal, 83% of initial public offerings in 2018 involved companies that lost money. Only 17% of IPOs were profitable. That's the highest proportion on record. When investors eagerly pour money into companies that have not made a profit and openly admit that they may never make a profit, we are nearing the end of a bubble. Now, John Rubino, who uh, will be on the radio program here in a couple of weeks, recently noted that $10 trillion of European government debt is now yielding negative interest rates. So think about it. You loan the government money to operate, and at some future date, they give you back less than you gave them. Yes, that's happening as well. We believe that we are nearing the end of this booms phase of the fight of the cycle the boom phase of the cycle i should say and because of that we're offering a free resource if you're just joining us so you can get a copy of our new retirement rules book uh, it's a book that uh, has been on the amazon bestseller list uh, the third edition has just been released and if you'd like to get a copy of it as well as some other information i'd be glad to send it to you absolutely free just go to the website thenewretirementrulesbook.com thenewretirementrulesbook.com and we'll be glad to send you a copy. That's our show for this week. Thanks for tuning in.